Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, the morning after the Fertility Show. And I thought I'd recorded a little intro for you at the show with all the Atmos going on. And I've just been going through all my recordings. It's actually 20 past five in the morning because I didn't manage to publish this podcast when I got in last night. So I've been thinking about it, having woken up about past four. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and publish the podcast quickly. I, I recorded that intro at the uh, Fertility Show. Can't find it. So what I will say is if you are in the UK and you've been hearing all the buzz about Fertility Awareness Week and the Fertility Show, um, I'll be sharing some of the content that I've recorded from the show. It was very busy, amazing as always, hearing lots of conversations about all the important things that we have to get our head around. If you're outside the UK, this will all be relevant to you because uh, the kind of things that we have to navigate our way through when trying to conceive I don't think our geography specific unless we're literally talking about where you're going to have treatment. Um, This episode that I'm going to share today is the last episode that Kate um, and I have made to share on UK Health Radio and what you'll find is that the podcast format returns to normal as of the following week. Um, But without further ado, this is a really really interesting conversation that the pair of us had with an amazing lady called Professor Cheryl Homer who is a specialist in male fertility and we'll explain more in the episode. Have a listen and be sure to rate and review, subscribe and share to this podcast. You can follow me on my socials at Fertility Poddy and listen to the end where I'll give you all the show notes of how you can get in touch with all of us. Hope you find it useful. Hello and welcome to Talk Fertility, a show where we do just that, talk about fertility. I'm Natalie Silverman, host of the Fertility Podcast, which I launched in 2015, once successfully pregnant after having fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, a trained fertility nurse and founder of Your Fertility Journey, where I work one-to-one with women and couples to help them understand and optimise their fertility. Welcome to another episode of Talk Fertility, where, as you heard us say, that's what we like to do. And Kate and I are really looking forward to speaking with our next guest. If you've been listening to this show for a little while, you may have heard previous episodes we have shared focusing on male fertility. It's something I'm really passionate about. Kate is also. And we've both had reactions from you that the information is informative and has provoked a uh, all sorts of question asking and that's what we intended to do so we were really pleased to be able to get hold of our next guest who is a fertility expert called Cheryl Homer Professor Cheryl Homer and I know you're really looking forward to uh, talking with Cheryl aren't you Kate? I am Cheryl is an andrologist and I was lucky enough to hear her speak in a lecture a couple of years ago and I have to say I couldn't stop scribbling notes during that lecture um, and I suspect I'll be doing exactly the same now in our chat but the information that I gleaned from her in that lecture completely changed my practice and changed the way that I, I think probably prior to then, I really wasn't considering the man very much. I was probably guilty really? of just about everybody, you know, the same we're, we're going to be kind of be talking about. But actually, it completely changed my practice. And I now, or since then, I've, I really do focus on the man a great deal. So yeah, I'm really excited to hear more from her and for, you know, for her to tell us some of her wisdom. 
So we're now going to welcome Professor Cheryl Homer to the show. Cheryl is the founder of Andrology Solutions and has recently become a professor. So first up, congratulations, Professor Cheryl Homer from Kate and I. <laughs> now, I will be sharing links with previous conversations I've had with Cheryl about the work she does in male fertility, which is the specialism that Cheryl has. And we're here today to talk about something quite specific that Cheryl, Kate and I have been discussing. And it's basically the way that we deal with infertility is wrong. And that's a conversation that we're going to explore a little bit more and then talk more about the work that Cheryl does when she treats men who come directly to her clinic. Just explain a bit more about that, Cheryl, what you mean by the way that we're dealing with infertility being wrong. Okay, so when a couple have fertility issues, invariably they go to a GP and a whole suite of investigations is carried out for the female. The man has a semen analysis. And while a woman is referred appropriately to a gynecologist for further investigations, so the gynecologist is a specialist in female reproduction. She gets a full investigation and her, any issues can be managed and treated. And then if problems persist, then the couple can be referred to an IVF clinic. On the contrary, for a man, he would have a semen analysis. The GP would look at that analysis. And if there's anything abnormal about that, there would be an immediate referral to see a gynecologist. So... To me, that suggests that the triaging is inappropriate here, because while the woman is fully investigated, should there be any problems, for the man, if there are any problems at all, there's no investigation at all. The couple are immediately referred for IVF treatment. Now, IVF treatment, as we know, is emotionally very difficult, financially, it's very costly, and physically, it puts a huge demand on the female partner. We are potentially putting couples through for IVF treatment that may not necessarily need it. So if the man is investigated properly and there are issues on his side that can be managed, and I will say can be managed because not all areas of male infertility can be managed, but for those areas that can be managed, those men may then become more fertile, more likely to achieve a natural pregnancy, and hence the need for IVF may not be required. Or if there is a need for IVF, at least the man will be in a better position to increase the chances of success. So I would like to see a change in the way that couples are triaged when they attend to their GPs. How do we go about making that change though, Cheryl? How can we start the process to be very different? I mean, obviously we can empower our patients and that's something that I always try and do is, you know, have those conversations with my patients so that they can go back to their GP and request a referral to an andrologist, urologist. But how else can we go about doing that? The GPs need to acknowledge that when there is the problem with a semen analysis or any symptoms that a man has, uh, that he should be referred to a specialist, so a urologist who has a specialist training in andrology in male reproductive system. And I think that that really is the crux of the matter. So there's that disconnect between awareness, do we think, of what andrology and what urologists do in the GP surgery? Do we need to have that understanding improved? I think that's absolutely right. 
Natalie. I think we really need to make the GPs aware that this is the way that they need to be referring the male patients so that they can get proper investigations and proper management of their infertility. I think far too much emphasis is put on lifestyle and diet, which, yes, it's very important, but heavens, it's not going to make you, unless you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, it's really not going to have a massive impact on your fertility at the end of the day. We had the experience, my husband and I, of, of having ICSI treatment because it was male factor. And it was only, and I've probably told you about this before, it was only two years down the line when we had a conversation with one of your colleagues, Jonathan Ramsey. He physically examined my husband and he was explaining about how that aspect of the initial consultation with the GP doesn't happen. Do you want to just explain about what that examination part for a man can can show, can present? Yes, exactly. It's ridiculous, actually, when you think that somebody is potentially diagnosed with a problem and they don't have a physical exam. I mean, that, that, that certainly would never happen for a woman. So for a man, that's essential because if he does have problems with his fertility, he may not necessarily have problems with his semen parameters, but if a couple are not conceiving, there still may be an underlying issue there that is causing molecular damage to the sperm that's not seen at the level of a semen analysis. So, for example, a physical exam may pick up a varicocele, for example, which is the, the leading known cause of male infertility. And unless you have a physical exam or an ultrasound scan, that's not necessarily going to be picked up. And a varicocele will damage the sperm at the molecular level to the point where it can significantly affect fertility. And it can also affect semen parameters. And an exam may be able to pick up an obstruction as well. So a physical obstruction. So that's extremely important. And that's very rarely done in men with infertility if you don't go and see a Uh, Do you think it's very rarely done because, or that GPs don't examine because they they don't have the knowledge and the experience to to know what they're looking for? Do you think that's the main reason? I think it's partly to do with that. There are some GPs that will give a physical exam Mm. to the men, but again, they're not trained in the same way that a urologist is. And again, also, I think a lot of GPs just don't know what to do with the men. A lot of GPs, unfortunately don't really understand the full depth of the meaning of a semen analysis to interpret all the different markers that we look at. A lot of GPs don't have a lot of time to do an in-depth interpretation of the semen analysis, and I think this is potentially a problem. But they do need to be doing physical exams, or at the very least, they should be offering ultrasound scans as women are. For their reproductive system, we do that routinely. Why is this not done for the men? And just going back to the varicocele point, once diagnosed and then operated on, the stats around success are pretty high, aren't they, with regards to having a successful pregnancy or getting pregnant? Well, they're similar to IVF, interesting enough. If you look at the data, and again, varicocele repair doesn't always work. Uh, varicocele repair is not recommended for very small varicoceles, what we call subclinical varicoceles. It's not recommended for that. But when you look at pregnancy rates in couples who are having problems, followed by varicocele repair, pregnancy rates are equal to or better 
than IVF success rates. And don't forget, a varicocele repair repairs the fertility if it's going to work. Whereas IVF, if it works, it gives the couple a baby, but the man is still infertile at the end, of, or the couple is still infertile at the end of the day. There's no treatment for their fertility as such. It's a circumvention. Whereas varicocele repair will hopefully repair the fertility. Would a man feel any physical discomfort if he had a varicocele, or is it just is it only something that could be diagnosed from a physical examination? Bag of worms. Bag of worms, exactly. That's what Jonathan Rams says. <laughs> um, you can't always detect a varicocele yourself. You can, for example, it usually occurs on the left side because that's where the spermatic vein comes into the testes. And it may cause a distension of the left testis. So you see that the left testis might be slightly larger. You might see a bag of worms on the side where those veins, those varicose veins are sort of sticking out. Sometimes men feel a little bit of discomfort when they're standing for long periods of time. It may feel like a drawing pain, but not always. Um, so it's quite subtle. May, yes. And, and the pain may come and go. You may not have it, but again, if there are symptoms, the GP needs to do a full assessment of the man to see what sort of symptoms he has. Okay, so we've talked about how we know the issues around how men are treated need to be addressed. And in an ideal world, that's something that, you know, this conversation could go out there and start to create a ripple effect, maybe a slow ripple effect. But whilst we're trying to educate and spread that word when we're talking about the issues directly affecting men day to day because I know in the time that I've talked about it more in this podcast more men have approached me to talk about it I think you've probably seen a similar thing Sherilyn that maybe more men are walking through the door with more information rather than just coming totally in the dark which is is great what kind of things are affecting men you you, you touched on the lifestyle but we know that for example there's a link with steroids and protein shakes and that whole gym mentality that we've got yes this is a major issue now and i think the problem too is that men don't really understand the difference between a protein shake and taking steroids to build up muscles because actually there was a study done quite recently by an American group that looked at about 32 different supplements that were bought either online from Amazon or from gyms and whatever and almost all of those supplements contain some sort of steroid enhancing material in them. Now, these are supplements that are not always advertised as, as muscle building. They could be advertised as, you know, energy support, protein shakes or whatever. I mean, obviously, the ones that are out there that show the big muscles and everything are promoting possible steroid intake. But all of them contain some sort of level, almost all of them contain some sort of level of steroidogenic compounds. So I think men need to be very, very careful. My recommendation is don't take anything that's offered to you in the gym. Don't take anything off the internet or even supplements that you can buy for protein energy building. Very, very risky if you are trying to conceive because we don't know what's in them. A lot of these products are actually made outside of Europe, so there's not, they don't have the same sort of regulation that we have in terms of knowing what's in them, even though if there are ingredients listed, there may be some that are not listed. 
So I would be very, very careful about those. It's very dangerous, isn't it? Because I've got teenagers and whilst my teenagers don't take them, I know that a lot of their friends who are really keen to kind of beef up a little bit more, they're taking them. And I've had a chat with my boys' friends and said, you know, please don't take this. I know right now you won't care about your fertility, but in 20 years' time, you know, 10, 15, 20 years' time, you may well start to be concerned about your fertility. And I think it's this lack of awareness. I'm trying to tell everybody, you know, please don't take them, please don't take them. And like I said, it's all, all even got to my teenage boys' friends that, you know, I'm saying, they probably think, I look at me, and think I'm absolutely mad. How did but, they respond? What was their response to you? Well, a little bit of shock, I think, initially, but then probably, oh no, I know, she's a silly old woman, I'm just going to carry on taking it anyway, because that, the most important thing for them right now is to How be rugby players, yeah, 100%. So I, I don't know, I, I, think, I think they're still taking them, which is, you know, sad, I can't do anything about that, but yeah, it, it is a real worry. With regards to oxidative stress, Cheryl, and the impact on motility. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yes. It's interesting because everyone knows about supplements. I'm not talking about muscle building supplements. I'm talking about fertility supplements. So if I ask them why they're taking them, how do they think they work? They have no idea. Well, they know that there are vitamins and minerals in them, but they don't know how they work. And I explain that what they are is antioxidants. They work against oxidants. They work to reduce oxidative stress. And we know there's a lot of scientific research out there that provides very good evidence that supplements are very good at reducing oxidative stress. Now, interestingly, if we look at all the known causes, the major known causes for men in fertility, they all have an impact on fertility by raising oxidative stress levels. So if you look at varicocele, for example, there are plenty of men walking around with varicoceles where it doesn't affect fertility. But if it raises oxidative stress levels, it will affect fertility. So obviously, in an ideal world, what we want to do is repair the varicocele to reduce oxidative stress. If you're taking antioxidants to reduce oxidative stress levels, that can be very beneficial. It's a little bit like taking antibiotics if you don't have an infection. Um, you might feel unwell. The doctor may say, well, look, you know, we need to determine if you really have a bacterial infection and then we can give you the antibiotics. Really, people need to know whether they truly have oxidative stress in their semen so that if they take the supplements, it's going to be beneficial for them. Because if they don't have oxidative stress, it may not be beneficial for them to take the supplements. But okay. there's no doubt that oxidative stress is a leading underlying molecular cause for male infertility because it will damage the fertilization process and also the oxidants will get into the sperm, affect the way in which the sperm moves. So it affects the energy stores in the sperm and it will also damage the DNA in the sperm as well. So it has a huge impact on infertility. So obviously taking good antioxidants, they are expensive. I have my favorite and I'll be keen to hear about your favorite, but they are expensive. So would you recommend therefore that men have testing prior to starting taking antioxidants? So have oxidative stress testing? I would, yes. And especially because everything in this world is in balance everything, and especially oxidative stress. 
When we look at what causes oxidative stress, it's an overproduction of what we call the active oxygen species. And interestingly, though, while overproduction of reactive oxygen species is very damaging to sperm and cells in general, because we know it's linked with cardiac conditions, cancer, etc. If you have an underproduction of reactive oxygen species, that can also be detrimental because reactive oxygen species are key to fertilization. So you need low levels of reactive oxygen species for fertilization, but high levels inhibiting. So if you don't have oxidative stress and you take supplements, you can put yourself into such a low level of reactive oxygen species that it actually triggers harm instead of good. So that's why it's very important to know the oxidative stress levels to start with before you start taking supplements. If people listening are getting a bit confused, as I was a little bit with that, and watching, because we're on video doing this chat, watching the pair of you excitedly nodding at each other because you both so got the science bit, but it's quite daunting for you as a patient to try and understand. And what we obviously started talking about was the need for this information to be more prevalent within the GP's conversation, but we know it's not. You're a London-based clinic, Cheryl. And this conversation is going out globally. Are you seeing more examples of clinics like like yours where the right type of conversations and treatments are happening? Have you got a best practice? Is there a country that you hold high as best practice or, or just an example of a clinic somewhere? Well, I think that we are moving forward slowly. I think there are some fertility clinics out there that are taking on board um, specialists in andrology, neuroandrologists, and bringing them into the conversation. And of course, they are they are the ones who are doing a more thorough investigation for the man. I think it's also quite quite difficult because a lot of the testing for oxidative stress is quite novel. So not all clinics, not all clinicians have accessibility to this type of testing. So it is, it's something that's coming through gradually. It's definitely something that we need to include in the investigation of the man. And if we had a, a gentleman that had oxidative stress and he started on an antioxidant, what time frame would you expect to start seeing benefit and when would you therefore suggest that he has maybe another test to see whether there has been improvement mm. so if he has high levels of oxidative stress i think we would also have to rule out the fact that he doesn't have any other underlying issues that are contributing to that such as a varicocele or infection or, or any kind of um, hormone anomaly if he is taking antioxidants or if he's being treated or managed or reducing any lifestyle issues that could be adding to that, we would require approximately 12 weeks to start to see an improvement in sperm quality because that's the time it takes sperm to develop. So we need to wait that whole 12-week period before we see the new batch of healthy sperm coming through. Okay, that's useful. Another question I've got for you, Cheryl, is a, a question actually that came from one of my patients who... Um, develop mumps as an adult and I was quite interested to understand more about mumps and the effect that it can have on sperm because I'm seeing 
I guess because of this the whole MMR vaccination and the fact that it's unfortunately slightly less than we would like within the UK that we are seeing more mumps yeah. in, in adulthood so what tell me explain a little bit more about the the effect mumps can have on sperm and what damage can occur okay so the mumps virus can actually get into the testes and it can cause inflammation of the testes and as a result men's tubes can get blocked we always hear about women's tubes getting blocked but men have a lot more tubes than women they have about six kilometers worth of tubes in their wow tubes. that's an awful lot isn't it i didn't know it was that much wow so their tubules can get blocked as a result of inflammation from months and of course if that happens the tubes are irreversibly damaged and they don't make sperm so if a man suspects that i mean if he suspects he's got mumps he needs to heart tail it down as quickly as possible to uh, a facility where he can store his sperm because it's quite likely that his sperm quality will deteriorate perhaps to no sperm at all and then it's not reversible gosh no, that's really, really significant, isn't really it? Significant. It was one of the um, when we were diagnosed with male factor. It was one of the questions that we were trying to find out about. That was an early question asked, actually. I think I don't know whether it was at the GP or at a, a fertility MOT. My husband had absolutely no idea about whether he'd had it or not. Is there in in the cases that you do see of men that have been diagnosed with male factor? Is it common that they have had mumps as children, or not really? Well, as children, it shouldn't affect them, right? they have months after puberty that it can affect them. To be honest, I don't see a huge amount of that. Usually if a man has months where it would affect him as an adult, quite often it results in azospermia. So those men tend to be referred directly to, to urologists rather than to me. The men I see with azospermia, I would tend to refer them straight to my urologist colleagues. So anybody listening who is struggling to conceive, maybe they've had some initial tests, maybe they've had some treatment and failed treatment, maybe they've got the unexplained infertility diagnosis and the man hasn't really been investigated. Because I've had this conversation a couple of times with experts and they've said, well, you know, why would you focus on the man then? What, what would you say to, to people if it's unexplained to push for more tests for, for the man? I think a lot of unexplained is actually uninvestigated when it comes to men. And I do think that the couple need to be investigated at the same time, not after the woman has been investigated, because male infertility is present in approximately 50% of couples who have infertility, 50%. Yes, so that insane. means 50% of the problem is coming from the man, 25% from the man only. So it doesn't make sense just to investigate the woman when there's an equal chance there could be a problem with the man. And you delay things, you delay things by doing that. And because a lot of people are coming to this later in life, because a lot of people in our Western society have careers, they delay things, and nobody can afford to waste time this is an, an absolute example of wasting time. And if that's not a conversation that their GP is really understanding, then it is one to then take to a fertility clinic? I think that the men need to be proactive and ask to be referred to a uroandrologist because I think that direct referral to an IVF clinic is not necessarily the appropriate way to go. 
And can mm. they get that referral, Cheryl, on the NHS or would it need to be a private referral? No, they should get this on the NHS. They should okay. request this. Mm. If you requested a referral to a gynaecologist, of course you would be referred on the NHS. In fact, that would be the appropriate way to go. Most GPs would refer the women to a gynaecologist. So the man should equally be referred to an appropriate specialist. Right, so we need to get that happening. So that's a question to, to ask. And I know that you'd made a point when we were first talking about the whole funding issue that we have with money for IVF. We are talking in the UK and obviously this is a, a global show. So this is quite a, a UK specific issue, but we're trying to get more funding for NHS treatment for IVF. However, your point is that if the men were treated earlier on, then the scenario would hopefully be that more men and couples wouldn't even have to go through the costly treatment because hopefully the problem, as we discussed, would be, would be fixed or at least helped. And, and, and this is a, an issue that's, that's dear to my heart. You know, I myself have had IVF treatment and I know that it is incredibly emotionally difficult. Financially, the costs are huge if you're not funded by the NHS. You know, physically, we women have to experience discomfort. And why would we be going for such an invasive, costly form of treatment if it's not deemed to be absolutely necessary you wouldn't do this in any other field of medicine you know if you had a heart condition you wouldn't immediately be referred for a heart transplant you'd be doing everything you can to try and improve your heart condition so that you don't need to have that form of treatment why are we doing this with fertility but the nhs does not have a huge amount of money to be throwing at absolutely everything we need to concentrate that money where it's most needed and if we can treat people outside of that and get people pregnant naturally or reduce the level of assisted conception treatment for that couple to make it less costly and less invasive for them, why aren't we trying to do that? Now, it's true, we can't treat every case of male infertility, but we can certainly make, make a good stab of it and improve fertility for many men and therefore many couples, reducing the demand on the NHS so that more money can be available to treat those who have no alternative. And that's what it should be used for. And I really feel this is such an important issue. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Absolutely perfect sense. But it's not being done. And it would save the NHS so much. Well, if you look at varicocele repair, for example, I mean, obviously costs vary in different hospitals, costs for IVF vary across the board, but in general, you're looking at about a third of the cost. Now, I know that a lot of doctors complain about all the tests, you know, why waste money on this test and that test when there might not be a lot you can do for the man? But you're talking about hundreds as opposed to thousands mm. when you're looking at IVF treatment. So testing is very important and further investigation and appropriate investigation, appropriate triaging is, is key to the way to go, I think. But it feels like if there's more conversations from patients asking for these tests, because Cheryl, I know you've talked about trying to get in front of the GPs with this idea of, of masterclasses to help them understand more. And it's a really poor analogy, but it just reminds me of Jamie Oliver saying, go and ask your fishmonger for different types of fish and he'll start stocking different exactly. types of fish. And sorry for the fish metaphor, but um, 
it is that kind of thing, isn't it? And I do feel that because there is so much more conversation about this topic now, especially since I've been working it, and I know, Kate, you feel the same just every time for example we put out a podcast on male fertility we get responses and that proves that the message or the information is filtering through it albeit gradually and so hopefully if we can encourage men and we tell them and women but we're giving them the questions to ask and Mm. there is more of the demand then maybe it's going to work that way rather than what the idea would be from the from the top down so to speak Yes, I think that's also very important. You know, we have to look at this um, holistically. So it's not just an issue of the GPs being able to triage properly. It's it's also the uroandrologists making their voices heard. It's about the patients making their voices heard. And it's about the IVF clinics in being more inclusive with regard to male fertility specialists. They need to have them on board. Almost every clinic in the whole of the UK is run by gynecologists. There's not a single fertility clinic out there that is run by a male fertility specialist, not one. There needs to be more joined up working. You know, why aren't these referrals between the two happening? You know, definitely the need for joined up working is, is just so evident. I think there's also issues because a lot of urologists don't necessarily specialise in andrology. Only a handful of them do. It's difficult because I'm always looking to refer patients because I see patients from all over the country, actually all over the world. And I'm always looking to refer them to somebody local. And it's very difficult to find, you know, local uh, urologists who specialize in andrology. There's only a handful of them around the country. There are more trainees coming through and I would encourage more urologists, young urologists to consider andrology as a specialist training it's a up-and-coming field i suppose the difficulty is just really briefly is if a man sees a gp first of all has has a sperm test the gp says sperm test is great you know absolutely nothing wrong with you perfect and then the woman is you know the couple of men are still struggling so from the gp's point of view well it's fine it's all great Mm. and i guess for the patient's point of view as well actually it's fine i don't need to worry about me so it's getting those messages across that actually the sperm test isn't the be all and end all and there is so much more that we need to be considering so if you're a woman and you have your hormone profile done for example and everything comes back absolutely great you wouldn't say well there's nothing wrong with you you're ovulating hormones are fine Um, your ovaries are working like an 18 year old go away and she may have blocked tubes she may have a massive fibroid impinging on her uterus no doctor would say that to her no gynecologist would say that to her. okay likewise with the men good semen parameters does not mean that the sperm are functioning properly the other thing too is that a gp doesn't necessarily look at all of the semen parameters in the analysis And there's a lot of information on semen analysis that can give you a lot of insight as to what might be going on with the man. So, for example, you need to look at things like volume of the semen. Very few GPs will look at that. That gives you a real indication as to how the male accessory glands are functioning. Your prostate. How's your prostate? Very important. Male accessory gland infection is known to cause a problem with semen parameters. And if a man has an infection, it's possible his wife has an infection, and that in turn can cause all sorts of issues. Um, 
his sperm count and motility might be fine. Um, so it's very important to have a proper semen analysis where all the parameters recommended in the best practice guidelines are looked at and that every parameter is considered and that it's not considered individually, but it's considered a whole, as a whole. And you really need to look at that properly because it gives you a much better insight as to what's going on. The other thing that's very important is that we always tend to forget is that when we're ill, we have a systemic illness. One of the first things to go is our reproductive function. So a semen analysis can be an indication as a secondary effect of an underlying systemic illness. We have an obligation to investigate men and make sure that there's nothing underlying this that may not even be involved with his fertility at all, but we still have a, an obligation to investigate. It's fascinating. Really interesting. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for covering so much because like we've said several times, if we can just get that information out there and have people asking more questions and, and not taking the no, is there a, a worst case scenario? Is that when it's azospermia, but then you can still have an operation to make fertility treatment happen? So, I mean, is there a, the, the worst case scenario is there is just no sperm? The worst case scenario is if you have azospermia and you've had a testicular sperm exploration and there are no sperm found in that procedure, and particularly when you're diagnosed with something called Sertoli-Solonia syndrome where you don't make any sperm at all, that is basically the sort of final uh, say-so, if you like, in terms of a man being able to have his own biological child. But there are alternatives out there. Yeah. Before we let you go, because you had a conversation with Rod Silvers, who was a, an earlier guest on this show, and Kate and I had a fabulous chat with him, and I just wondered what My you... My man crush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just wondered what you took away from that exchange with Rod. I mean, we'll share that it was a Radio 4 documentary that the pair of you were both in, and it was brilliant. What did you take away from him and his experience? Well, I think I admire him greatly, uh, what he's been through and how he's really helping to increase awareness of men in fertility, but just a heartbreaking situation where men are considered the appendage to the condition and not treated equally in terms of clinical investigation, but more importantly, as a human being. Yeah, the emotional as, side. And I see men mostly on their own. And I see men whose lives are broken by what they are going through. And I know that men suffer equally to women with this, but I actually think it's, it's harder for the men. I do believe that sincerely because the men do not get that kind of support that the women get either from their friends, family, colleagues, clinicians, the men are just not getting it. And I'm so glad to Rod that he's able to try and uh, bring this to the fore because we, we absolutely have to improve um, support for the men and understanding. We're hearing more and more that men are listening to this podcast because 
A, they can do it in private. They don't have to be necessarily talking to people if they don't feel comfortable, but they're coming to the podcast, listening to podcasts, listening to particularly the, the ones that we've been doing recently about men. And I have, I run a little support group in Town, and a lot of the ladies that come to the support group, that their husbands are listening and, and how much support and knowledge that they've gained from this podcast with the fantastic guests like yourself that we've been talking to. And that's, that's really it warms my heart to know that actually that they can get there is somewhere where they can go and get information yeah, i do believe men men need that information in a different format i think most men would prefer to have a bit more privacy about things um, and we need to respect that and we need to understand that so we need to provide that information in a different format and there are some very good support groups out there like gareth downs there's over a thousand people in there now and I spoke to Gareth when he started it a couple of years ago. I mean, again, I'll put that link in, in the show notes for this because that's a male-only Facebook group. And I think the fact yes. that it is male-only encourages mm. more men to be open uh, about and how they feel. Anonymous as well. And I think yeah. I like that too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for everything. And we look forward to speaking again. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. Now, we recorded that conversation with Professor Cheryl Homer on video, and so I could see you furiously scribbling. I was scribbling away two case, and you said at the start that you were expecting to learn even more, having been scribbling notes when you first heard Cheryl speak. Was that the case? Definitely, definitely. I've learned a lot more about what I need to be looking at within semen parameters, not just morphology and motility, but considering volume, which, you know, I've, I've not. I've really not. I think what is definitely been quite has come through on that that chat really and the main point that I'm taking away my take-home piece is that we need to be empowering the man to be able to ask their GP the right questions and get the right referral and the right testing that's my main takeaway yeah. no totally agreed so that's your homework is go and ask more questions. If this is really striking a chord with you, if it's where you're at, or even if you know somebody that might benefit from this, do please share because we know that we are getting more guys listen. You're getting in touch and telling us, which is amazing. And um, if it gives you a bit more confidence in asking those questions at the GP, then please do. And by all means, get the GP to have a listen as well, because that's what we want, as many people as possible, to understand what it is that we need to change in our practices. We'll be back again with you next week, so make sure you join us then. So much there, wasn't there? So the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Professor Cheryl and Cheryl is S-H-E-R-Y-L. There I'll put links to Cheryl, her clinic, to Kate, to me. And um, as I said at the start, be sure to rate and review, subscribe and share this podcast. It'd be amazing, as always, to get your thoughts. It was so nice at the Fertility Show getting to meet some of you and hearing that the podcast is is helpful, that um, you know, you're know you finding the, the content really useful at the different stages that you're at. Those five-star reviews make a massive difference in your podcast app, especially if you're listening to Apple Podcasts. Um, like I say, we're re- returning to our normal um, way of publishing um, in the coming weeks. So keep listening and we'll be sharing more from The Fertility Show. For now, though, I'm going to go make a cup of tea. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until the next time, 